Hi, everyone. Welcome back to It's Not Magic, our podcast from Sixth Street. Today, you'll hear my conversation with our friend and author, Richard Hurwitz, who just published an important book about the Holocaust, in particular about people who risked their lives to rescue Jews during World War II. Not just people who saved people during the Holocaust, but people today who are doing good things should be recognized, not just because they deserve it intrinsically, which they do, but also because that kind of modeling is important. And so again, I've been really touched by the amount of people that want to hear these stories and really kind of want to understand what made them so special. We met Richard doing a deal about 10 years ago. He's a smart and interesting person, and his book is called In the Garden of the Righteous. It's really 10 stories about largely unsung heroes. It's a page turner, and I think it's important. And if you'll bear with me, I think it's important for leaders of organizations, including businesses. Richard has thought a lot about what distinguishes people willing to stand up and take unimaginable risk for what's right. And one of his conclusions is that culture, national cultures, really matter. And the culture of our families, of our towns and schools, our houses of worship, and our businesses are the building blocks that make up the collective rules and norms that tell us what we'll permit, what we won't permit. And so cultivating those cultures where we are right now can really, really matter. We talk about realistically how rare these stories were, but how people do good things and how we should spotlight those things. Richard tells a story of someone named Roddy Edmonds, an American hero from Kentucky, whose story didn't go in the book, but whose actions in saving American Jewish POWs is unbelievable and deserves recognition. We talk about culture and small acts of kindness and how education doesn't guarantee decency and a lot of other things. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. Hi, Richard. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I think your book is a great book. I think it's really well written. I want to talk about how you did that. I also think it's a really important book. I would love you to start by telling one of the stories that I've heard you talk on other interviews about Gino Bartoli. And I think it's a fantastic story about a, a really interesting character. Can you tell us who he was? Sure. You know, so the book is about stories of rescue during World War II um, of Jews and other people who are being hunted by the Nazis. And um, it focuses on 10 different stories. And pretty much what I've learned is it's a very undercovered area of the of history, not just in World War II, but even among people who focused on the Holocaust. And so there are many people like Bartoli who had these extraordinary stories that are just completely unknown. Now, he was not a unknown figure. In fact, he was definitely the most famous athlete in Italy. He was a cyclist, probably the most famous athlete in Europe at the time, certainly one of them. And he won the Tour de France in 1938. And, um, you know, to, just to contextualize this, I mean, cycling, it's, it's still a big European sport, but at the time it was, it was like cycling mad, particularly in, in Italy. And, and, and if you've, anyone's ever seen the movie, the bicycle thieves, you know, that continued for a long time. And so he was this very famous celebrity. I mean, I, I try to maybe the right comparison to somebody like a LeBron James. And sports were also extraordinarily important to to the the to Mussolini and his regime, the fascists. And so they had been on quite a um he he had a famous quote where he said I want to turn Italy from a nation of mandolin players to a, like a nation of warriors and athletes. And so uh, sports was a big part of what what he was doing both at the in schools and he liked to portray himself as a sportsman but also for the professional athletes and so at that time, Primo Carnero was the heavyweight champion of the world. He dedicated his championship to Mussolini um, in the Olympics, which were held in Los Angeles. Italy came in second in medal count. They hosted the World Cup. 
the year before Bartoli uh, won the Tour de France. And so everybody dedicated their victory to Mussolini. Uh, Bartoli didn't do that. This is in 1938, uh, right before World War um, World War II broke out. And um, he was a devout Catholic and the only other like sort of institution in Italy that had any kind of you know counterweight to the fascist was actually the church. The church is very complicated, which we can talk about. But uh, yeah. but when he won the Tour de France, he actually went to a, a church in Paris and dedicated it to Mary. And when he returned, it was not lost on the fascists. And were, I've seen his police file, and he was sort of you know kind of shunned and made into this sort of. They said they gave instructions to the press just cover his whatever he's doing in cycling, but don't cover any anything else about him and try to downplay Bartoli. So he was already on the crosshairs of the regime. When World War II broke out, he was uh, drafted like most um, people, and he ended up um, actually serving as a bicycle messenger um, so that the idea was he could stay in shape and the guy that he reported to was a cycling fan. So, And Bartoli did a couple of things. He First, he hid a family of Jews in the basement of a building he owned kind of next to his house in Florence. He was Florentine. And he also hid a, a Jew and a Romani because they were also persecuted as well and, yeah. and um, victims of the Holocaust in his bicycle shop. And he did this throughout the war. And, you know, at any time, you know, this was quite a dangerous thing to do. At one point, he was actually interrogated. But then maybe even more interesting um, is he became part of something called the Assisi Underground, which is, I think, not that well known, but it, it was a pretty wide clandestine network in the north of Italy that was spearheaded by the Catholic Church. And uh, this is fascinating because what was going on was they were hiding Jews in, particularly in Assisi, um, but all over in convents and monasteries. There'd never been a Jew who had lived in Assisi, and yet now they were being hidden in the cloisters as as well as partisans and other people on the run. And, you know, critically important to this was false identity papers. And so Bartoli would put the fake papers that were counterfeited in his bicycle. And if he was really the only person in Italy at that time who not only had an excuse to be out in his uniform with his name on the back, biking for hundreds of miles a day in training, he also had the physical ability to do that. So he could actually (laughs) bike from Florence to Genova in one day. So he was bringing these papers and, and, and intelligence around and he was kind of hiding in plain sight. So there are all these stories of him being stopped at checkpoints and he would say things like, you know, my bike is perfectly calibrated. Don't touch the bike, you know, and people would say, don't touch Bartley's bike. You'll cost him the tour. And then, you know, here there were other scenes where he showed up once at a, a train station in um, town that was a big crossing. And when he showed up, you know, he was so famous that it caused a huge ruckus and and all of the, even the police and even the Nazis were crowding him and people were giving him cappuccino and he's signing autographs. And in the meantime, in the background, the partisans he was working with were moving Jews from one train to the other and down south to where to the, to the free zone. So he did all of this amazing work. I mean, the Assisi Underground probably saved about 700 uh, Jews. He personally, again, by hiding uh, Jews, you know, that we know of at least six or seven people he saved. Um, and then, of course, this is pretty common among rescuers. He never told any really anybody. He never talked yeah, about you said, it. You, you talk about this in the book. Like, this is a common theme where you have to pull it out of him. And he, he actually never told the story. His son wrote a book about him. What, what's that all yeah, about? Yeah, so, so, so he confided in his son. And there were rumors right after the war. And it was well known in the Jewish community what he had done. But he really only talked about it with people who had been there. And there were a couple people that approached him. But I've seen footage from his 80th birthday party. And he wouldn't talk about it. He didn't even want to talk about how he also rescued a bunch of POWs. His son said to him one day, like, why are you telling me this? And he said, well, one day you'll, you'll know what's, when's the right time. But he said, you know, if you do good for somebody and you talk about it, it takes away from it. 
And he also said he really wanted to be remembered as a cyclist. He didn't think what he did was extraordinary. He said other people, the people who really died or were put in prison, they're the ones who are the heroes. I'm just a cyclist. And he has this wonderful line. I, I found it very beautiful um, uh, where he said, you know, some medals you win in this life for winning a bicycle race and they go in a museum or a trophy case and other medals you get in the next life and they're pinned to your soul. And he really believed that. And, and it's really extraordinary also because he was somebody who was a household name in Italy. After he retired, he became this like famous sort of curmudgeonly commentator. The Pope was a fan. He was like, he was the Coca-Cola spokesperson. He was, um, you know, friends with Maria Callas. And so, and he lived to be, you know, in his 80s. Um, and so he died in around 2000 and had certainly had the platform had he wanted to talk about this. And again, sure. it was there was a book that came out that he was so upset about when they made it into a movie. He tried to like shut it down. So yeah, that, and it is very, it's almost universal among the rescuers that they don't forget, brag about it. They often don't even want to talk about it, but they certainly... The refrain is the same. I didn't do anything extraordinary. I did what anybody else would do. I just did the decent thing. And it's 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 kind of spooky because I've read at this point probably thousands of accounts and it's it's said over and over and they use almost the exact same language. Well, uh, let's talk about that because you, you said the, the common refrain is that anybody would do this. And you also said at the beginning something that's true, which is that this is underreported or this is not a common sort of theme in talking about World War II or about the Holocaust. And... In part, that's because not actually, not actually, not a lot of people did this. And can you talk about that? I mean, it's it's how many among the nations are there? Yad Vashem, twenty seven thousand, I think. Yeah. And even if you round up or whatever, it's just a it's a drop in the bucket in terms of the, the people. And so, talk about this, and and maybe talk about it from the context of like, why did you write this? Why is this important to talk about? So yes, there. So there's twenty seven thousand people that have the title of righteous among the nations, and I one example. I try to do to contextualize that for people because 27,000 people sounds like a lot, right. but that was at a population of 500 million in Europe. So if you, I'm sitting here in New York, but um, you know, most basketball stadiums are about the same size. But if you take, forgive me for using this, but if you take Madison Square Garden <laughs> as an example and you fill it up with a representative sample of Europe at the time, you would have one person who is a righteous among the nations. Now, the righteous title is extraordinarily difficult to get. There's very stringent criteria and I think too stringent because- you have to risk your life or your career. You have to have eyewitness testimony. Uh, you have to. You can't be Jewish. Um, obviously, all of the failed rescue that was went on was uh, not accounted for. There, um, there are other forms of rescue we can talk about or helping that I think are really critical. Um, yeah, Primo Levi talked about a man in Italy who, when he was interned, a laborer every day brought him soup, and he said this man kept me alive because I still knew that somebody out there thought knew I was a person and cared about me. And so that man is not getting the Righteous Among the Nations Award. But, you know, so it's like one out of 20,000 people. But even if you round, you know, you double it, yeah, even if you multiply by 10 or 100, it's still most people did nothing. They're just extraordinarily rare people. And I think we can learn a lot from them. I'm a big believer that who a culture values and who we celebrate is a huge reflection of who we are and what we value and how we will ultimately behave, not just in extreme circumstances like the Holocaust, but in everyday circumstances. And certainly in, you know, since World War II, there have been 40 genocides, but you don't even have to, you can even just talk about how, how a nation and how people treat each other. So I think it's very important to celebrate these people. Um, you know, they're very, very um, under unknown. So what I learned was that other than Wallenberg 
And then after the movie Schindler and, you know, maybe the rescue in Denmark, people have virtually, unless they were rescued by these people, they were their family, they don't know who they are. I mean, I opened the book with a rescue of a man named Aristides de Souza Mendes, who it starts actually with the rescue of the people who wrote Curious George. But over three weeks, he was a Portuguese consul. He saved as many as 30,000 people by giving them visas when no one else would do it. And uh, so there's probably 100,000 people alive today. And there were many famous people that he saved, but also mostly just poor, mostly Jews on the run, but other refugees as well. Can we talk about him for a second? I want to linger over him for a minute. He's the single largest rescuer in the Holocaust, and yet nobody has heard of him. And I think, you know, there was a rabbi who was involved, a California rabbi in one of the people who sort of tried to start changing this narrative in the 60s. And he said, you know, there's a historical injustice that everybody knows who Heinrich Himmler is and yeah. who, you know, Hermann Goering are, but nobody knows who Aristides de Souza Mendes is. And so Bad Vashem from its founding had as one of its core missions actually remembering the rescuers. And Golda Meir gave a speech when she was foreign minister, when she dedicated the what's called the Garden of the Righteous there, where they have this tradition that every time someone's honored, they plant a tree. And she said that these people were drops of love in an ocean of poison was the the phrase that she used. Yeah. And, and so I think as anybody of goodwill owes it to them, because these are some of the most heroic people in world history who rose to the occasion at the worst time in world history when most people either were standing by or collaborating or worse. And um, we need to know their stories for many reasons. And there are many reasons why they were overlooked and all of that. So you reconstruct them for Aristides de Sizamendis, who he's a very relatable person, character. You reconstruct this moment where he's he's in the consulate in Bordeaux, right? In in the yeah. Portuguese consulate. And, and he's um he's got all these people lining up outside and they're desperate. They know what's coming and they need or they think they know what's coming and they need to get out. And he kind of gets sick. He doesn't know what to do. He's like it's clearly like he's having an anxiety attack or something. And then he kind of comes out of it and he, he draws this very human conclusion. Like, if, if I'm not going to do this, who's going to do this? I can't let these people die. What is that moment? And how did you think about him? Because he felt very human to me. He felt very familiar to me. Yes, I, I agree. And actually, the, the, um, the Christian Science Monitor referred to him as the breakout star of the book. So he, yeah. he does seem to have this effect on a lot of people. I'd written an article about him for the New York Times that went completely viral. Um, yeah, and what you described is correct. I mean, if you go back to like the lead up to that, you know, he was a aristocrat born in Portugal. He was a twin, and his brother was the became the foreign minister. They were both in the foreign service, and 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 his brother was the one that was kind of the rising star. And Susan Mendes was a bit more of a the other type of diplomat. He was an amazing entertainer and bon vivant, and like Einstein was in his house, and he had this huge family of fourteen children, and he was like a person who loved life, like just had this kindness. And and before the moment you mentioned, um, the dictator of Portugal, Salazar, had sent out a memorandum to all of the consuls, basically saying no refugees, like particular, like basically no Jewish refugees. And, and the reason he did that is because Franco, he didn't want to get Spain pulled into the war and, you know, again, anti-Semitism and all of that. And so uh, Susan Mendes had already violated that twice before this moment. And one time, actually not for even a Jewish, if it was for a professor on the run from Barcelona. And he'd been reprimanded. So he actually knew that the government wouldn't look kindly about on what he was about to do. And you you had this moment in Bordeaux that is, you know, again, World War II is like the highest drama ever. So, yeah. you know, literally you have the largest traffic jam in history coming down from Paris as France falls. You have 
the government of France arrives in Bordeaux. Um, the future government of the Vichy France is there. De Gaulle is briefly there before he flees to the UK. And you then have like literally millions of refugees and people are going door to door asking for visas because you needed a few different visas to get out, one of which was an exit visa. And um, everyone slammed the door, including the U United States of America. And so he had this conscience, right? And they so he looked outside and there had been rumors that, you know, the Portuguese consul had maybe sympathetic and he came out actually to see what was going on because it was such a ruckus and he met a young rabbi who had a large family and he said to the guy, you know, why don't you spend the night? And the, the rabbi, uh, you know, spent the night and they talked and Susan Mendes talked about how he was, he was very devout Catholic as well, but he thought he was descended from conversos. And he said to the rabbi, look, I think I can get you and your family out. I'll give you visas. And the rabbi said to him, I can't take visas for my family. And, um, you know, I, I, um, I, what about all the other Jews out on the street? I would, that wouldn't be right. And again, like through, when I wrote this book, like there are all these moments where you're like, what would you have done? And there, there's an example. Yeah. Like, I mean, I would have taken the visa. I'll tell you that right now, but he didn't. Yeah. And so Susan Mendez was struck by this and he did have this moment. And I actually have seen the letter he wrote to his brother where he said, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. And, um, he had sent his, his two oldest sons were there and his nephew. And so there were, you know, they, they all wrote about this, that he, you know, he literally like took to his bed and was very tortured. And then he dramatically got up and said to his family what you said. And then he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I would rather stand with God against man than with man against God. And then he went out and made this very dramatic statement where he said, I am going to give a visa to every person who wants it, regardless of, you know, your religion or who you are. And so then over the next three weeks, he did that in an act of supreme pettiness a British woman showed up at the embassy for a regular tourist visa, and she was asked to wait because they said, you know, we've got a little bit of a situation here. There's hundreds of thousands of refugees. Do you Can you wait like <laughs> 10 minutes? And she stormed out and complained to the British embassy, which reported it to Lisbon, at which point, like, very, very senior officials came down to try to stop him. And everyone knew that the Germans, there'd be a capitulation imminently. So he then started going all around the South, where he also was, they all reported to him. And gave visas to, you know, he was just writing them on pieces of paper and, and like his hand was, you know, the signature act. You can see in the archives, his signature starts to fade. And he personally escorted people across the border. And and then three weeks later, the door slammed shut. And, and then he was, um, for his efforts, summoned back to Lisbon, put up on disciplinary hearings. The disciplinary hearing came back, said he should be reprimanded. The Foreign minister said, no, he should be um, demoted. And then Salazar personally, because he really didn't like him, sealed his file and said, no, he will, he should be fired and lose his pension. And then Susan Mendez, who had grown up very wealthy, um, ended up with this very sad end. He, his wife died. He died prematurely. He had gone through his entire life savings. He, um, I, I saw the street where he died in a Franciscan uh, hospital, like with no, like basically Franciscan robes. Um, his children had to leave the country. He had children all over the world, including two from Berkeley, California, who were born there. They were American citizens. They volunteered, fought for the United States. They used to fly at his home flags from all of the places where his children were born. So there was an American flag there. And um, and then, of course, later, uh, or even during his lifetime, uh, the Portuguese tried to take credit for what he did. Right. And um, and he it wasn't until the 90s that he was recognized. He's now a national hero in Portugal. But he had this very sad end as did many of these rescuers. And, um, you know, there's a, a moment where he, you know, the Jewish community in Lisbon tried to help him when he had like no money. And he showed up in his, at that point, threadbare diplomatic um, 
garb and and there was a part of the this like kitchen that was for refugees and part was for people have a regular meal and he was in line and a young Jewish volunteer said, you know, sir, why don't you, you know, you, you should go to the other room because he was where the, re-, and he said, no, 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 we're all refugees. So, you know, again, um, we don't know exactly how many people he saved because it was very chaotic, but over three weeks, at a minimum, it was 10,000 people. And so again, he is the largest single rescued by a single individual in the Holocaust and he's virtually unknown. And so that, that's sort of one of the reasons I really wanted to write the book. And as I started telling these stories in periodicals, the, the, the response was so great to hear stories like this that I think they're, because they're so inspirational yeah. and so powerful um, that that's why I ended up, you know, turning them into a book. But he is, uh, I agree with you. I mean, he's, you know, I always, there's, there's something about him, like his kindness and he, the fact that he also like moved into action knowing he, this was not going to end well for him, talked about how he knew he was going to be punished. And in fact, he was, and his life was ruined for basically, um, he just had a breakdown because he had a humanitarian instinct and he he couldn't stand the suffering because literally he had people were showing up. I mean, they're like children were showing up having seen their parents like murdered by the Luftwaffe strafing the people fleeing with machine gun fires, un- unimaginable scenes. And it touched him. Yeah. Let's talk about culture because um, and you and I've had this conversation a little bit. At first, I was a little shy about kind of linking World War II, the Holocaust, and trivializing those massive tragedies that words don't really work to describe and talking about it on a business podcast, right? And uh, talking about uh, organizational culture and a lot of things that we talk about in our business and that we've talked about with other guests in in very different contexts. But I'm less shy about that, especially right now as we talk about culture on university campuses, college campuses post-October 7th. Um, as we're talking about anti-Semitism, which is just unfortunately directly on point, because our 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 kind of regional cultures, our national cultures, they're they're all they're components of just all the individual cultures that we that we have. Is that a lesson from the book? And if so, what can we learn about how we inculcate, I guess, the right kind of cultures where we're going to be sympathetic, empathetic, where we're not going to certainly not murder people, but where where we're going to be I- inclusive and we're going to inculcate the behaviors that you saw as commonalities among rescuers. Am I trivializing? Are we trivializing important things or is this important? No, I don't, I don't think you are at all because, because I think, you know, I talk in the book and as I've talked about the book about what are the lessons we can draw. And I, you know, I hope, look, there are people out there doing what these people did today. I, I, you know, I'm sure we will hear stories out of Israel and Ukraine. And, um, I recently had, the privilege of sitting next to um, the man from, uh, um, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but uh, Paul um, Rusasabinga, who was the the manager of Hotel Rwanda, right? And and actually talking to him was like talking to somebody out of my book. It was pretty remarkable, like all of the characteristics that these people that I've noticed pattern recognition he had. But I think there's also very important lessons to understand about what makes a, a culture broadly speaking, you know, the term is used altruistic. And there actually has been, I think, you know, in our country and in in other countries, particularly in the West, a desire for organizations like businesses or not NGOs or certainly schools to be mission-driven and altruistic. And employees want that and customers want that. I think we've gone down the wrong road, but I think there's a lot of lessons to to learn. And I think that's a really admirable goal. 
So I don't know. I don't think it's trivializing. That's why I mentioned the story of the soup or the man in Denmark who said, who was one of these amazing rescuers. And he said, you know, we were the tip of the spear. We risked our lives. In our country, like people would look the other way. The further east you went, the worse it went. And I think it's really important, by the way, also not to judge people because, you know, the, the punishment in a place like Holland for helping Jews was prison. In Poland, they would kill you and your family. And actually, yeah. there was a recent, I think, an f- entire family was sanctified by the Catholic Church for they all di- were, were killed because they were trying to save Jews. They killed the Jews, too. So it's, you know, it's very hard to say where you would behave, but I, where I definitely think we can, where, you, where there is an opportunity to make a difference is what's the culture around it. And that's what made it successful. And so I'm particularly fascinated, actually, and I wrote an article when the book came out for the Wall Street Journal about this, about places, but it could as easily be organizations where you had unbelievable success rates, like literally 100%, 99 to 100% of the Jews saved. And it wasn't just Denmark, which is a very famous story where everyone from the king down basically stood together from the day of the occupation and said, you cannot you know, um, round up our Jews. And, and, and in fact, there's an apocryphal story that the king wore the Star of David. And the reason it's apocryphal is because they never allowed them to put the Star of David on any of the, the Jews. And so, and then when, uh, and even the, um, the SS recommended against rounding up the Jews because they knew that if they did it, the Danes would go absolutely crazy and it would cause a huge headache. And Hitler himself personally finally ordered the roundup and then they were tipped off. And the entire country, and this is where the Olympic rower you mentioned, was one of the people in this sort of amateur flotilla, very similar to Dunkirk. And they rode all the Jews across to Sweden. Um, and there were about 7,200 Jews and about 800 people married to Jews. And um, they all got across except about 500. They were taken to Theresienstadt. And then the Danes would check on them constantly. Uh, how are the Jews? You know, Send them food, medicine. They insisted on inspection. And all, all but 50 of them survived. But then you take another place like Albania, majority Muslim, a place where um, Jews and Christians had lived together since the Roman Empire and then Muslims after the advent of Islam peacefully, you know, sort of like the town of Toledo in Spain. And, and um, only country, the, the FDR's ambassador was Jewish, actually cabled back. You've seen the Kibbles. This is the only country I know in Europe without any religious bigotry. It's also the only country with more Jews at the end of the war than before the war. And it was on a list at Vansi where the Nazis created the final solution. They made a list of all the Jews and they wrote Albania 200. Other places, there's an island in in Greece uh, called Zachintos, uh, 100% survival rate. The town of Le Chambon in France, a Protestant descendant of Huguenots. There are a chapter in my book, saved 5,000 people, 3,500 Jewish children. So the question is like, what makes this possible? You know, and that yeah. was, a, by the way, a nonviolent place, right? right. And uh, like the pastor was known as a major figure in the nonviolent movement. And, um, and so, so I think, I mean, there are a few things, right? And, uh, one of the most important things, I think people, you know, people make fun of this anti-bullying campaign, and I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's very important because what you see is when the majority of a culture or a country has an ethos that we're not going to tolerate hatred, we're not going to tolerate bigotry. Those are not our values, and then they have the willingness to stand together to take action, which is a lot easier to do than as an individual. But if somebody stands up and says, "Hey, that's wrong. You shouldn't." say that that's hateful or even that's just mean. And everyone else stands up together and says, yes, those aren't our values. And there's schools like where you see that, you know, and that's how you create a culture 
where it becomes very difficult for even the Nazis to be successful. So I think that's a very, very important lesson. And it, it comes from the top, but it has to go through the whole culture. And you have to really be insistent on both the ethos and then police it. But I will say one other thing I was thinking about in light, you were talking about the universities, yeah. because there was very little systematic research for a variety of reasons we can talk about done on, res- on rescuers after World War II. There was a lot done on the perpetrators, you know, the Milgram experiments, the Stanford prison experiments. There was a lot done on bystanders, but very, very little done on rescuers. And there's one study that's not particularly satisfying because, I mean, I have a lot to say on this from my own research, but but they were it was a Freudian study. And the only thing they found was that how you were disciplined as a child tended to correlate very strongly with your willingness to rescue and to stand up and to maintain your moral compass. And they found that this also correlated greatly with what they were looking for was this altruistic personality, but it negatively correlated with a desire for authoritarianism. And one thing I found was interesting is the discipline that was loving and explained and transparent and commensurate was almost every rescuer experienced that in their home. The people that were where the parent flew off the handle or things were unclear or the punishment like was way, you know, like like you, you spilled like something on the carpet and your parent like punched you, you know, those people tend to be, you know, very authoritarian. And so I, I think there's like some th- something to that when you talk about cancel culture, actually, because yeah. the idea of like forgiveness. So obviously when you have a bad apple or somebody does something that's objectively terrible, you know, uh, sexual assault, whatever, that, that needs to be punished and it needs to be addressed. And, and I do think due process is important, but it needs to be addressed. But the idea that like sort of anonymously somebody can be canceled for uh, something slight, you know, like that actually is a very authoritarian impulse and is not, doesn't actually, I think, help with even when people are well-meaning in what they're trying to do. So this idea, because again, like everything goes back to early childhood and how you are treated and the, the original culture you grow up in, which is your home. The one thing that almost every rescuer had, I mean, they, that most of them were driven by something bigger than themselves. But the one universal thing is they all had somebody in their early childhood who was often a parent or both did a couple things. They did. They told them you shouldn't be mean or bigoted to other people and expose them to other people. And also said, if you see something, you should act. Irena Sendler saved 2,500 children from the Warsaw ghetto, risked her life every day. Her father was a doctor who had told her, if you see someone drowning, you have to save them. But the other yeah. thing they did was they, many of them grew up in loving and supportive homes. And so they weren't afraid to make mistakes. They felt valued. If you think about being a rescuer, you had to really have a lot of self-confidence because you had to believe that your moral compass was correct when everyone around you was doing something different. And the biggest risk that any rescuer took was denunciation. So the most rescues failed and failed with you know fatal results because of somebody turned you in for spite or bigotry or often for small amounts of money or because they wanted your house. Yeah. I mean, this is your point about like, you, you know, make no mistake, I would have taken the visas you said, and the, the, I, I, no one knows what they would be like, but statistically I would have done the same. Right. And, but the point is that if you have these cultures where, you know, I, but I might look the other way if someone were right. being brave. And, right. right. And, and we can all that, do that. That kind of matters. We, yeah. And, and also the other thing that matters because you read Holocaust survivor testimony, I mentioned Primo Levi, but many, yeah. many survivors talk about that somebody who, you know, let them stay the night 
in their barn or gave them a cup of coffee or even just smiled at them because they knew they were on the run and just gave them like hope. Those people literally years later, they would talk about them and how that gave them the power and the stamina and the ability to survive. And I think like you don't know what someone's day is like. Right. And so when you are show some small act of kindness, you, you, you can actually have a major impact without realizing it. And it has to become something though that's, yeah. That's exact, accepted. And I don't want to overhammer on the business culture thing, but you, meant, you mentioned, you did mention cancel culture. And we, we try to talk, well, I had a, we had a, we had a panel discussion that, that we're going to uh, uh, put out anyway. We, 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 but one of the themes of that was, ta- was talking about one of the panelists talked about grace in, in, in their corporate culture. We think of it as like just the presumption of good faith. Like not everybody's going to say everything perfectly. We're going to make mistakes. And obviously this is, these are much smaller stakes than, than what you've been talking about, what we've been talking about. But creating that space where you can actually kind of not, not be disproportionately punished for stuff. And we obviously get people in our businesses well after they're formed as kids, but I think it matters. I think it matters that, you know, if you create a, a safe space where, yeah, bad things have to be punished. You have to speak your culture. You have to kind of draw the lines and, and, and put your money where your mouth is, but you also have to create an environment where there's forgiveness and, and there's understanding and it just, it just engenders, better behaviors, better results, and, and maybe we can stitch together kind of a, a quilt of better cultures kind of all around so that we can perform better nationally, God forbid it comes up. I agree. I, I will say I had the experience that was really eye-opening. Of I did a lot of interviews for the book, and the, the set of interviews that I did that were the most interesting to me were the children of the rescuers because yeah. it was a mixed bag, right? And so people like Hiram, like Hiram Bingham, I spoke to three of his children, they view him as a saint. Varian Fry's son has been outspoken, not just with me, where he, you know, said his father was, you know, kind of violent and bipolar. And, you know, even this, these people in Le Chambon who are these known, you know, nonviolent, very famous, you know, this activists, is their daughter. May and his wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I spoke to his daughter, who's 95. She was incredible. She read my chapter and said my, you know, the, the carpet was a different color, but she also said like my parents, you know, they didn't, <laughs> she's like, I never would have expected them to because they were so busy, but they didn't come to my piano recital. And, you know, it still bothers her and she's 90. So what I found was that this made them human, right? I mean, these, these weren't people that set out to save the world, like a mother Teresa. I mean, some of them were so, you know, Irena Sandler was a social worker, but again, she actually was, had quite a complicated personal life. And to me there, the lesson is you don't have to be a saint to be a hero. And these were just people that rose to the occasion and, and, and you don't have to be you know, they were ordinary people. I mean, like education, if anything, actually correlated negatively, which I think we're seeing on university campuses. And somebody, in, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, somebody in you know who was saved in Le Chambon said these were not people that they didn't read the newspaper every day, but they read the Bible. Yeah, I mean, everybody at the Vonsi conference had either a PhD or a law degree. I'm a big proponent of education and higher education, and I'm the product of it. But but it is that an interesting thing. It doesn't yeah. necessarily make you a kind person. I want to actually talk about the level of knowledge that you're finding out as you go around the country and talk about your book. But the Vonsei Conference, of course, is where the high-level Nazis got together and, and decided on the final solution. I mean, this is this is so all of them having PhDs. I didn't know that. That's uh, that's not surprising, I guess. But it's a fact to to linger over for a second. I do want to talk about your your process. It's effectively ten books. I mean, you know, which makes it sound like a very long book. It's not. How did you do it? A word on your your research, and then I want to talk about selection because you left some very interesting stories out of the book. Um, one of which you refer to in the in the prologue. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, the original book was supposed to be fifteen stories, but then it would have been 
a tome and you know my agent and my <laughs> and my editor and I had a chat and you it's funny you say that it's like 10 books because my editor pointed that out to me and I will never do that again because that was the <laughs> research but it was you know and particularly yeah. with the holocaust I think you have to be you know I'm a trained historian and a lawyer like you and so I was very focused on making sure you know there are a thousand footnotes in the book there were originally 2000 until my again my editor and agent had a chat with me but it's really important actually to with it particularly with the Holocaust and the idea that, you know, there is obviously a Holocaust denial out there to make sure that things are as accurate as possible. So, um, so we, I, you know, I, I say we, because I actually had quite a lot of help on translation. Cause I, I, there were about 12, at least 12, a dozen different languages that we, I did archival research in of which I know two, I, I mean, I have English and broken Italian. Um, and, um, so in, 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 um, you know, archives all over the world. Um, particularly helpful is, the, is actually Yad Vashem because every time someone is nominated, there's a pretty thick file with eyewitness testimony and documentary testimony that's in there. Um, and then, um, you know, I did as many interviews as I could. Um, you know, most of the survivor, I spoke to a lot of experts in the field, but also a lot of the survivors, there's, you know, they were children at the time, but they, they have, they still have a lot of recollection. And then again, as I mentioned, I, I spoke to as many family members as I could. And, you know, um, yeah, it was a process of selection as well, um, because, you know, and I've continued to write some other stories for papers, but, you know, I tried to find stories that were representative of a cross-section of the type of rescue that went on geographically, the different types of professions people were in. We talked about a cyclist. I also wanted things, you know, that were really good stories with drama or color. So like there's a rescue in a circus and, um, there's, uh, the story of Gino Baratelli and there's, um, also things that show document the different types of the Holocaust, right? So part of the book is in France, which was a very different thing than the chapter on Irena Sendler, which was in Poland where, yeah. where you really had all the hellscapes that you think of were in Poland where the death camps and the Warsaw ghetto. And if you've seen, I just saw this movie, the zone of interest. And it's just like, that's where, you know, the worst of the worst of the worst that we think of happened but would you talk about roderick edmonds from kentucky who i think of as like yeah oh, who i want to think of as like a prototypical uh, american character roddy edmonds is amazing he i mentioned him in passing i actually just wrote an article in august i have a pet project that maybe some of your listeners want to help on which is to get him recognized so he was a, a, a it's, it was in time magazine we'll, we'll post it it's a good it's a good piece yeah he was a guy um from kentucky and um he was in, enlisted um as and he was a non-commissioned officer in in the U.S. Army, and um, he was at the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, he was a master sergeant, and um, he was part of a group of twenty thousand American soldiers that were sent to reinforce what was called the Siegfried Line, and they were captured. Um, they were the their commander surrendered, uh, but this was at towards the end of the war, and um, they were put into um, into POW camps by the Nazis. And I didn't know this, but the Nazis actually rounded up. American Jewish soldiers, and they would send them east to labor camps, and they would disappear them. And on a U.S. dog tag, actually, it would say there was a letter H, which meant for Hebrew, and they, they, it was there not because it was there to, in case someone was killed, uh, they were know how to bury them, but all the Jewish soldiers were getting rid of their dog tags. And so the Nazis were really looking for them, and they were originally sent to one camp, and they put the, the Jews, and Edmund saw this like in the, in the worst barracks with like vermin all over, and then for some reason, they after a few months, they um, they separated them by uh, officers, non-commissioned officers, and enlisted men. And so he went to the NCO camp, and there was already British and Russian and Canadian prisoners of war there, and the 1,200 Americans showed up. And he was the highest ranking of the non-commissioned officers. 200 of the 1,200 were Jewish. 
And the first night, it came over the loudspeaker from the commandant. He said, all Jews report out in front of the barracks in the morning. And Edmonds, who, by the way, I, I suspect had never met a Jew until he was in the U.S. Army, called everyone together and he said, we're all going out. So the next morning, they went out in formation. He was at the head. And there were a no- lot of eyewitnesses because pretty much everyone survived. And the, the commandant came storming over to him and he said, these people cannot all be Jews. And Edmonds looked at him and he said, we're all Jews here. And then the guy, uh, Nazi, pulled out his Luger and he pointed it at, at Roddy Edmonds' head and he said, if you don't tell me who the Jews are, I'm going to shoot you. And he said, again, pretty cool customer. He responded and he said, if you shoot me, you better shoot all of us because this war is almost over and you're going to be hanging for war crimes. And the guy you know, turned red, put the Luger away and stormed off. And so he saved, again, 200 Jewish soldiers, Americans. Um, and, and then, um, and he also then, by the, there was a whole separate story about how he actually ended up getting the Americans liberated before anyone else because he refused to allow them to get pushed east when the allies arrived. But anyway, he comes back yeah. to the United States, tells nobody, tells nobody this story um, and dies with nobody knowing it. And then years later, his granddaughter, uh, his son is a pastor and his granddaughter was doing a school project and, you know, like, what did your grandfather do during the war? And they found artic- an article in the New York Times where a guy uh, who um, was one of the people he had rescued said, yeah, when I was in, in the army, um, you know, this guy, my, um, Roddy Edmonds, saved my life. Um, one of the people he saved was actually became the host of the children's show Wonderama. But, but that was so, <laughs> so that was that was how they they found out the story. And then the son sort of started interview, you know, track down people that had been there. And so they, um, he was honored as a um, righteous among the nations. He's the fifth American, only one for saving American Jews. And um, so he received the medal. Um, President Obama spoke at the ceremony. But what I was, my project is as follows: is first of in all, there's legislation. Well, they give you the medal often in um, in your home country. So his family oh, was there. So I was in Washington. Got it, got it, got it. But. But Obama did attend and um, and talked about how he's you know like this great American hero. But yeah. the United States has not honored him. And and there's two ways of doing that. And the first is that there's every year there's legislation that's been put in the last few years into Congress, and they just can't get enough people to show up to vote. So if you have any pull, you should tell your congressman to vote. And the other thing, which to me is sort of mind boggling, is that the um, I think it's the Medal of Honor is the highest military honor. And the oh, military. Uh, army has refused to give it to him on the grounds that he, his actions did not take place during combat. And yet he had a gun pointed at his head by a Nazi. Um, and, but somehow this is not viewed as, you know, in combat. And so he has been on a technicality denied this, but I, I think, you know, this is a, this is a pretty heroic American who should be honored. And again, we see the same pattern of told nobody didn't even tell his I mean, his son found out and his granddaughter by accident by reading like an archival article in the New York Times. And so somebody, you know, who he saved happened to, rem- you know, remembered it. And for like, you know, 40 years later was interviewed about their own experience and mentioned him. And that's how it came up. So, that's how, that's how it's um, but he is a real American, American hero um, and, and deserves recognition from our country. No kidding. It's an incredible story. Um, there's so many threads to pull. I, I, I do want to – you cover a lot of them in your book, and I, I really urge people to read it. I, I do want to ask you about going around the country and talking about it. What have you been hearing? What are people asking you about? What, what, are, what, what are your observations? What are you surprised by? Um, well, I think 
I'm always surprised by the different audiences, which stories they gravitate to. Um, and there's certain ones I would have thought would have been different. Um, another surprise is I, I would have thought more people would have asked like questions about sort of like God in the Holocaust. And, and I've really only gotten those a few times and always from adolescence. But, you know, I've spoken to, um, uh, so the book, it, it, you know, when it, it came out before October 7th and, um, you know, it, it had, uh, started as a series of articles that, as I mentioned, had very, very, I mean, one of them went to number two on Reddit and they were shared very widely with, without any negative kind of anti-Semitic backlash to me on Twitter or anywhere, which I found remarkable. That's astonishing. Yeah. I mean, I've written about Cleopatra's monetary policy and gotten sort of, you know, <laughs> stuff. So there's something about them that I think is very inspirational and that continues. Um, I've, again, it's been all audiences. So, you know, I was on the radio in Arizona where someone asked me at the start of it to please explain what the Holocaust was. And then I've spoken to a lot of Jewish audiences. I've um, spoken to, you know, um, a lot of religious audiences, but also just, you know, general audiences, uh, his, people interested in history. Um, so it has like a following among people buy for their dad or their grandfather that like re- loves to read about because these are unknown stories from World War II, right? And, right. you know, I've been asked since October 7th that some of the conversations have taken on a little bit of a different tone because I used to say I never thought that people would ask, do you think the Holocaust could happen again? And I talk about how, well, it's kind of a unique thing, but there's 40 genocides since World War II, including in our, you know, like 500,000 people died in Syria in the last 10 years. And, and there's things going on right now. But after October 7th, I've sort of change my mind, you know, certainly that, that I do think it could happen again. It could certainly, certainly happen. So, so that's, that's, that's been a big change. It's been, you know, interesting. I think people are looking for inspiration and they're looking for, for positive stories. And so again, also, I think, you know, people have been interested in, in what made these people do, you know, we didn't talk as much about what made individuals do this, but also then, you know, what made groups do it. Um, and again, and like people, the thing that doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. It dis, it, I hope I'm making a bit of a difference on this is, you know, I've yet to come across people who know these stories, even not, not the Arizona audience, but highly educated people who focus on the Holocaust. I mean, maybe, you know, I, I just, I spoke last week in California and I was in a room of probably 200 people. And, you know, some of the guy who interviewed me said, how many people have heard of Aristides? This was a Mendez and like two people raised their hand. So, right. um, but uh, but again, I, I, I'm an optimist. So even though I'm saying I'm worried, I do think, you know, that there are a lot of good people in the world. And I think that what we really need to do is focus on people. We don't do a good enough job, I think. And that's part of what I my response from having audiences who are interested in this is I think people want to do it. But the dark side of us does focus on the evil. It focuses on why people did this. It focus, look at the news. I mean, the news is always filled with what's terrible. And um, we need to do a better job of honoring people who do good things and, and at a big scale, but also at a smaller scale. And we need to like teach children that that's what we should aspire to. I brought Abe Foxman, who is the head of the ADL, who has been a mentor to me on this book, to my daughter's school. And you could hear a pin drop. And he said, you know, at the end of the day, is it more important to touch somebody's life or to how much money you have or how many followers you have on Instagram or whatever? And, and many people want to feel that way. And we need to tap into that. Like there is goodness in people and we need to, and again, it's, as you point out, it's like a building blocks, right? You start with people and then families and then organizations and then countries. And, and I think we need to do a little bit of a better job of honoring, again, honor. It's, it's great to honor like actors and 
you know, I, my degree is in ancient history. So you, I always think like, where are we on the cycle of Rome and the decadence of society? But like, we, we need to, uh, not just people who save people during the Holocaust, but people today who are doing good things should be recognized, not just because they deserve it intrinsically, which they do, but also because that kind of modeling is important. And so I, again, I've been really touched by the amount of people that want to hear these stories and really kind of want to understand what made them so special. So, um, I'm going to um, let you have the last word there because I think that's really important. And I look forward to continuing this conversation with you over the years as friends. It's, it's you know, look, a friend, a guy we know in business and, and now personally writes a book, you're like, yeah, I'll read the book. It's a really good book. It's really well written. It's very, very well done. It's uh, people should get it. It's important. And it's, it's a page turner. It's, it's, it's uh, so congratulations. It's great. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. That was Richard Horowitz. We spoke on December 21st, 2023. I've been thinking about the book a lot since I read it and about the conversation ever since. In the Garden of the Righteous, it's really well done. Can't put it down. I think it matters for leaders of organizations and communities to think about what we celebrate and honor and how we cultivate cultures that advance civility and independent thought and decency because each component of broader culture matters and the alternatives are awful. Thanks again to Richard. Thank you to everyone for listening. You've been listening to It's Not Magic, a Sixth Street podcast. You can read more about our guests on SixthStreet.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it. And follow it at Sixth Street News on Twitter for more news on the show and our firm. Thanks to Sixth Street's production team, Patrick Clifford and Ritvi Shah, putting this together with sound engineering by Stephen Cologne. Our theme song is It's Not Magic, an original creation by Patrick Dyer-Wolf. Once again, I'm David Stiefelman. Thanks for listening. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Sixth Street, and Sixth Street is not providing any investing, financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. Please see additional disclosures on our website for more details.